trust you as our good father more and more. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. As you turn to James chapter 1, we've mentioned several times uh, in our series in James how far, how James doesn't brag about the fact that he's the half-brother of Jesus. But in the way he writes, it's obvious he was very close and he loved the teaching of Jesus, his brother and savior. Especially in the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous teaching of Jesus found in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Parts of it also in the book of Luke. Now most people have a picture of Jesus teaching the Sermon on the Mount with him sitting in the, with children gathered around him, maybe a breeze blowing through the grassy hillside while he holds and pets a, a docile lamb or some other children's Bible picture of Jesus. That the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus at his nice and friendliest best, which only proves that someone with that perspective on the Sermon on the Mount has never actually read the Sermon on the Mount, because it includes some of Jesus' hardest words about who he is and what his kingdom and mission are really about. One of the most terrifying images from that sermon is found in Matthew 7, 21 to 23, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and drive out demons in your name and do many miracles in your name? And then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Just imagine that scene on the day of final judgment, a self-deception that's so deep These people make it all the way to the presence of Jesus, still declaring that they were doing all of these things for him. Amazing things, casting out demons, prophesying, many miracles. And Jesus looks at them and says, no, you're putting on a show. I never knew you. That had nothing to do with me. You only thought that it did. Can you imagine that extreme of a self-delusion? It's terrifying. And, and we need to pray, God, help us see if that's us in any way. But notice what Jesus says in verse 21. Who will enter the kingdom of heaven? The one who does the will of my Father in heaven. I can't help but think this passage was running through the mind of Jesus' brother James as he's finishing up chapter 1 of this letter. And so let's read what we've looked at the last few weeks, and then we'll finish up the last two verses today. Verse 18, by his own choice... He gave us birth by the word of truth so that we will be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. My dear brothers and sisters, understand this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. Therefore, ridding yourselves of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, humbly receive the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like someone looking at his own face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer who works, this person will be blessed in what he does. And we've seen over the last two weeks, looking at God's word at work in God's people, verse 18, God makes us alive by his word. His word becomes implanted in us. God moves in. He never leaves. And our responsibility as his people is to receive this implanted word, which means continue to believe and submit to the authority of the word of God in all of life. And then this shows up in us being a people 
who not just hear the word, but do the word, obey the word. And the word has this lasting effect on us. It makes us a people who are slow to speak, slow to anger, quick to listen. We seek to get rid of moral filth and prevalent evil in our lives. We experience salvation, freedom, and blessing from living this way. That takes us all the way through verse 25, which brings us to the last two verses. If anyone thinks he is religious without controlling his tongue, his religion is useless and he deceives himself. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this. To look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. How do you know this work of the word is showing up in your life? How do you know that you're really hearing and obeying his word? How do you know you're not headed down a path of self-deception when you stand before Jesus, but you're actually doing the will of your father in heaven? Well, three qualities we see in these two verses, and, and I would say this verse is, th- these, this list is not exhaustive, so these aren't the only things we have to do, but it's representative of a heart that's been transformed and is being transformed by the Word of God. Three qualities. My prayer for us is that if, if there's necessary heart change that needs to happen in us, maybe even for some here, salvation, Holy Spirit, convict, like help us to see. In, in what ways our hearts need to be encouraged or challenged to engage in these ways that these verses lay out? Like Holy Spirit, come and challenge us and encourage us to engage and do this work in us. The first quality is controlling the tongue, obviously from verse 26. James has already talked about controlling the tongue earlier when he spoke about being quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become anger, angry, our human anger Almost always expressed verbally, at minimum, our human anger never accomplishes God's righteousness. And he will go on later to spend a huge section of chapter 3 on controlling the tongue. Paul also speaks of our speech as having a certain quality if we are born again. Ephesians 4, this entire section where Paul's writing about what our life as new believers should look like, where we're putting off the old self and putting on the new self, and he has this list, and this list just keeps coming back to speech. 425, therefore putting away lying, speak the truth, each one to his neighbor, because we are members of one another. Verse 29, no foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need, so that it gives grace to those who hear. Verse 31, let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting, and slander be removed from you, along with all malice. And be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. Later, a few verses, in, uh, a few verses later in chapter 5, obscene and foolish talk or crude joking are not suitable, but rather giving thanks. Paul would also say in 2 Corinthians 12, 20, For I fear that perhaps when I come, I will not find you to be what I want, and you may not find me to be what you want, perhaps There will be quarreling, jealousy, angry outbursts, selfish ambitions, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. These are verses written to churches. This is not written about people outside the church. This is written to people in the church, which honestly isn't very surprising if we're we're honest. Now, if we want to come up here and put on a show and look pretty and pretend, sure, it's shocking. He would talk about church people like this. But if we're honest... Some of the meanest people in the world are sitting on pews this morning. 
Some of the most vicious people with their tongues are, are worshiping Jesus. I just sat through a convention for two days where people would get up and spew this stuff and then sing songs about Jesus. It was so weird. Jesus helps us to see why this is so important, why James can say what he says, that controlling the tongue is evidence of someone who is of God versus an, an uncontrolled tongue is evidence of self-deception. In Matthew 12, Jesus says, either make the tree good and its fruit will be good or make the tree bad and its fruit will be bad for a tree is known by its fruit. Brood of vipers, how can you speak good things when you are evil? For the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. A good person produces good things from his storeroom of good, and an evil person produces evil things from his storeroom of evil. I tell you that on the day of judgment, you will have to account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Our tongues reveal the true condition of our hearts. They do. What's inside is going to come out. We can pretend. We can fool people for a little while. We can learn how to accommodate our speech and behavior to be acceptable. But eventually it will come out, especially around the people whom you let your guard down the most. Which is why it's really good for us to be deeply in community with one another. Because the deeper we're in community with one another, the more we let our guard down and the more the real us comes out. Which isn't pretty, but that's when disciple making starts to happen. Because then we can see how much we need the gospel and how much we need each other to apply the gospel to us. The religious leaders of Jesus' day were consumed by what you put into the body and what you did externally to the body. But Jesus revealed over and over that it's what's inside of us that is actually broken and in need of the gospel. And so an uncontrolled tongue is evidence of a heart that needs change more than external motivations or pressures. Can you stop telling the joke that, sure, it's funny, right? But it's also going to hurt someone and ostracize them or be so crude it goes too far. Can you be the gossip stopper and not the one who just adds fuel to the fire? Can you use your tongue to build up, even if it's hard words, Versus tearing people down with your human anger, your fear, your desire to control, or your own insecurities. Gospel transformed people are people who have a tongue that is more and more being taken under control by the Spirit of God, by the Word of God. And this is pure and undefiled religion. This is not religion that's self-deceived. This is a religion that's real. Secondly, pure and undefiled religion cares for the needy. They look after orphans and widows in their distress. It's no coincidence that God's referred to as a father in this verse in the context of caring for widows and orphans. The psalmist says about him in Psalm 68, 5, God in his holy dwelling is a father of the fatherless and a champion of widows. God, our father, built into his law care for the most vulnerable. We look back sometimes at the Old Testament and the law, and, and we think it's just like harsh legalism and rules. But actually, compared to the surrounding pagan culture of its day, the Old Testament law was incredibly life-giving and merciful. To the widow, the orphan, the stranger, they wouldn't automatically be enslaved or cast aside as meaningless like pagan cultures would, but there were laws in place that would care for them, invite them in, and help them. Crucial to details of stories like Ruth, who along with her mother-in-law Naomi were allowed to glean extra food for themselves so they could eat. And that was according to the law that God had given about harvesting that said, don't go back and get every scrap of wheat to make as much money as you can, but leave behind some 
for the poor to find food. All through the Gospels, you see Jesus' heart for the poor and the marginalized and the ostracized. Certainly in ancient cultures, this need was even more pronounced because they didn't have the systems and structures of our day to help the single mom or the widow or the orphan. They were even more vulnerable back then. But let's not kid ourselves. Our systems are not perfect today. 100,000 kids in the foster system. 3,500 of those in Louisiana. 126 waiting to be adopted. All it would take is for every church in Louisiana to have just one foster family that they would fully get behind and support. And the foster system in Louisiana would be radically transformed. Like we, in our time as a foster family, five years that we fostered, we saw the difference that just our family could make. And we see the difference that other families in the crossing are making and just multiply that by churches that would engage. Widows or single moms or ladies of our day Yes, they may be able to have jobs and not have to beg like they did in the ancient times. They can get more support from programs in the communities, but money in the bank and food in the fridge is not, does nothing to help with loneliness or the stress of parenting alone. The church is designed to be a family, but sometimes the church is simply a family for families. And those without nearby family can get left out. Single moms or single dads can feel like outsiders in the church community. Singles, period, can feel ostracized because they're not a couple. So God help us love and invite them into our singles, into our home and our lives and reflect the heart of our Father in heaven to be family for those who need family. And that's just caring for those who are among us. What about those in our city? Like we can do transactional projects like feeding the homeless at a shelter. We've done that. And it all kind of, okay, we're here to make disciples. We're not just here to give out food. Where's the disciple making? And we, we felt that tension. But to make disciples of the poor and the marginalized is going to take a whole other level of investment and sacrifice. And frankly, it's easier and more comfortable to just go back home from our downtown meeting space, back to our comfort and our schedules, than get our hands dirty to help the poor and the marginalized. Like, God, help us. Raise up or send us disciples who will lead disciple-making ministries among the poor and the marginalized in our city. Like, maybe the Spirit of God is going to speak to your heart this morning and say, I want to engage. Maybe we're, our hearts are ready and God sends someone and they help lead that ministry to, to do genuine disciple-making among the poor and the marginalized. We have opportunities that pop up. Just last week, someone showed up looking for help moving. That happens because of where we meet on Sundays. And, and I'll tell them when they talk to me about money, like, look, we're not going to be an ATM for you. And that's really sometimes all that, that they want. And they'll leave kind of disgruntled, even if we help them out a little bit financially. But what we want is to make disciples, which does include help like money and financial assistance without enabling sin. But it has to be more than just that all reflecting the heart of our Father in heaven. I mean, he designed his law so that his people would do this for thousands of years. So what does that look like today? Not just us paying taxes and letting the government do it for us, but what does it look like for the church to engage? What does it look like for the crossing to engage this in the city of Monroe, West Monroe? Now, we'll see this even more heading into chapter 2. Not showing favoritism toward the wealthy, but seeing us all equal in God's eyes. But thirdly, we see 
pure religion, true religion, evidence of the gospel changing you is keeping yourself unstained from the world. Similar to his earlier encouragement to rid yourself of moral filth and the evil that is prevalent, world is a, a word in the New Testament that can have several meanings. It can refer to the earth or all the people in the earth, but it, it can also refer to the world system that is under the control of the enemy of God, which is the reference here. Uh, Ephesians 2, verses 1 and 2, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the disobedient. James will come back to this in James 4. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be a friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. So, so this closing section of chapter 1 is kind of like a bridge and also an introduction to the rest of the letter because we'll keep coming back to some of these themes over and over and notice James doesn't say to isolate or insulate ourselves from the world, but to be in the world, but keep oneself unstained. To be in the world. Jesus, in fact, he wants us in the world, but in a way that allows us to be salt and light in places of darkness and moral decay, so we can proclaim and demonstrate his truth and his life. Close enough to people that they hear the gospel and they see our lives and, and, and they know that what we're proclaiming, we really believe this. We're all in on this Jesus. Not for us to become, but not for us to become polluted or dirtied ourselves. So, so what does this look like? Well, it, it is working jobs and living lives and going places with intentionality that allows you to be around people who are far from God. It's not just clumping up with Christians and holy huddles of comfort and ease. But we do this in community because we need the accountability and the encouragement on our mission or else we will compromise our faith and we will become stained or we'll get frustrated that we aren't seeing gospel transformation and we'll just quit. What this doesn't look like, I had a guy once try and convince me about his mission to the waitresses at Hooters. Not kidding. He and his wife would go and he would strive to treat them with dignity and honor as a man because they rarely get this from men was his justification. I went home and shared this with Jennifer. He didn't pass the Jennifer test. She, two thumbs down. But it might be two ladies on mission to a place like Hooters or a strip club if we have those in Monroe or some, something like that. Or it could be two or three guys or some couples sharing drinks at a local brewery or sports bar to build relationships to get to, to the gospel taking roles in theater productions for people who are talented in that, winning awards. Wow, that's amazing. So you can build relationships and share the gospel in places where Jesus is very much needed, engaging in political discourse and community affairs in our city, working out at gyms or doing jiu-jitsu, playing soccer, playing sports, not becoming stained by being around non-Christians, but bringing the gospel to them. Jesus was a friend of sinners. He went to their parties, but he was never polluted or stained by sin so they could see and hear the truth of his kingdom and feel the love of God. And now he sends us to do the same thing. And it must be in community so we can have accountability and encouragement and so we can make sure we're not just indulging or compromising our own hearts. And James says in these two verses, this is true religion. This is pure and undefiled religion controlling your tongue, caring for the poor, living a life of moral purity. Again, not exhaustive list, but representative. This echoes the Old Testament, which condemned God's people who would show up to the temple 
and offer sacrifices, yet didn't care about the poor and the needy or use their tongue to destroy their neighbor. Isaiah 1, just one example. What are all your sacrifices to me? God says to his people through the prophet Isaiah. I've had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of well-fed cattle. I have no desire for the blood of bulls, lambs, or male goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires this from you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing useless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons and Sabbaths and the calling of solemn assemblies, I cannot stand iniquity, sin with a festival. I hate your new moons and prescribed festivals. They have become a burden to me. I am tired of putting up with them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will refuse to look at you. Even if you offer countless prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves. Cleanse yourselves. Remove your evil deeds from my sight. Stop doing evil. Learn to do what is good. Pursue justice. Correct the oppressor. Defend the rights of the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. God hated this hypocrisy in the Old Testament. Jesus hated this hypocrisy in the Gospels. And he feels the same way about this kind of hypocrisy today. He has not changed. His disposition toward this has not changed. He's not like, oh, well, I've gotten older. I've gotten softer in my old age. I'm okay with it. He's not like that. If you profess to know him and you show up in places like this, giving all the signs of being one of his people, but you have no heart for the poor and the needy and you lack self-control and personal purity, you could very well be in a place of self-deception. Controlling the tongue comes from humility and consideration of others, which is evidence of the word of God at work in you. Serving and caring for the widow, the orphan, the poor comes from humility and consideration of others. Not being stained by the world comes from humility and consideration of others, primarily Jesus and what he feels about you. These are the epitome of a heart and a life that have been and is being changed by his gospel. And the only way this happens is if Jesus is alive in you. And as this happens in us, then Jesus is seen. Jesus is put on display in our lives. And maybe no other verses highlight this as clearly as these two verses. Now generally, generally, speaking in vague generalities, it's been true of those on the left politically as well as churches that lean left They do a great job of social justice ministries, caring for the poor, speaking up about injustice and things like racism and those who are marginalized. But they're often not as vocal about things like personal morality. Generally, they'll be more okay with sexual sin, whether it be heterosexual sin, sex outside of marriage, or it could be same-sex relationships, or maybe even today's transgender issues. That we care so much for the image bearer to be loved and cared for, to find dignity and worth, we struggle to address the obvious sin in their life and their personal morality. And generally, it's been true of the right, politically, or churches that are conservative, to be a strong champion for personal morality, sex reserved for marriage alone, heterosexual marriage alone, living a life of purity and morality, but they struggle with social justice issues, except abortion, But the abortion fight is mainly to get Roe versus Wade overturned. Again, these are generalities of the world we live in. Certainly there are exceptions. Jesus comes in with his people. He's not going to be co-opted by any political party. And he creates a third way that allows the church to be strong in both areas. 
personal morality and social justice and show the world a distinction between the church and the political systems so that Jesus and his people will never be in the back pocket of any religious group if they are pursuing Jesus or any political group. We want to be pure and holy in our speech and conduct and be unstained by sin. We can uphold the clear proclamations of God's word about sexuality and gender and marriage. We can care deeply and work hard for issues that will help the marginalized, the poor, the needy. We can speak and work to see racism and racial inequalities and racial tensions healed. We can say on July 4th that we are grateful God created and has sustained the United States. And we can party and pop fireworks and honor and recognize Juneteenth because on July 4th, 1776, that did not mean freedom for everyone in our country. That had to come much, much later. We can say, yes, we want Roe v. Wade overturned and abortions to become illegal, unthinkable, and unnecessary so more babies will live. But if that does happen, and it could happen this week, the work has only begun for God's people. As the battle over this moves to the states, there will continue to be unwanted pregnancies and single moms, mostly poor, minority, and marginalized, and they will need help and support. Will the church only celebrate the end of Roe? Or will the church step up in love and serve those who need help? As Jesus' people, we can do both. For us, this is not political talking point, points or virtues to signal, but real-life image bearers, the baby, the mom, the dad, who all need Jesus. This is not the easy way out, but it is the way of Jesus. And when we are able to walk this out, it helps show the reality of Jesus alive in us. And so by his grace, we keep trying to figure it out. We keep working. We, we might get misunderstood. We might get labeled. We might get accused of certain things because we're not putting ourselves in all the little nice and neat political categories in our, in our culture. Who cares? We're pursuing Jesus. So what he says about us is what matters. This is pure and undefiled religion. This is not self-deception, but this is self-authenticity before God as a broken people pursuing Jesus. Religion has become a bad word. It's mostly used as a negative word in our church. We even have charts that we've shared from Tim Keller that puts uh, uh, the differences between the gospel and religion in, in stark contrast. We say things like, maybe you're here today and you're just religious and you need Jesus. It's actually not a word used very often in the New Testament, just two times here in, in Acts. But in the history of the church, it's only become a bad word in the last couple of centuries when it's taken on the connotation of dry and dead, legalistic, ritualistic practicing of our faith. In church history, and here in James, religion speaks of the totality of one's ultimate allegiance and commitment. It's a comprehensive word for the specific ways in which the heart relationship is expressed outwardly to God. How what we believe shows up in how we live. And in this meaning, religion is good if your heart is good. And so if you're here this morning in this passage, or if the Spirit is speaking to you words of conviction, hear it as words of conviction and not condemnation. You're alive. Jesus is here. Repent. Run to him and let him continue to change your heart so that your life will more and more reflect his life. This is the good news of the gospel. Jesus came and was falsely accused by the tongues of men. He was marginalized and ostracized by those in power. 
He was condemned by the world system. He was crucified, dead, and buried, and rose on the third day to give us life so we could be his people, living lives, controlling our tongue, loving and serving, not uh, uh, lording our power over the marginalized and the oppressed, helping the needy, and living a life unstained by the world. Jesus, thank you so much that this is who you are, and this is who you are making your people to be. And we know that you who are in us, you who have begun this good work in us, will complete it. So we, we know where we're headed. We know that as you disciple us, as you discipline us, as you teach us, as you conform us through your word, through your spirit, to your perfect will, we more and more will reflect this pure and undefiled religion, controlling our tongues, loving and serving and caring for the poor and the needy, the widows, the orphans, and being unstained from the world. And we know that as we do this, the gospel is going to spread because people will actually see Jesus and not a bunch of church people or religious people alone. So do this in us. Do this through us. Help us to impact our city and our region and beyond. Wherever hearts are this morning, in whatever way there might be conviction or, or someone feels challenged or the spirit as at work, maybe even salvation. Today will be the day of salvation for someone. Jesus, make it happen because of your great love for us. We ask and pray these things in your name. Amen.